God has done, what God keeps doing, and that's really what we're celebrating today as we close this Home Away From Home series is that Jesus has gone to prepare an eternal home for us, and the church gets to be a taste of that, a preview of that that gives eternal life and that gives family in a lot of places and a lot of times when there isn't family. And so this really is a special day for us. And I'll tell you, if you ever question whether our family is committed to this church, just remember that my wife went on camera at eight months pregnant. And so she was, uh, she was a trooper through that. Um, but this really is a special day. And even if you're a guest, this is a special day um, because I think what you're going to experience if you're a guest is that you're surrounded by some of the most loving and some of the most generous and some of the most sacrificial people in this community that, that give of their time and of their money on a consistent and ongoing basis to try to make this a great community and to try to impact our world. Um, and this is kind of the day we've been waiting for. This is Commitment Day uh, related to our Home Away From Home initiative. And so I uh, just want to let you know at the close of my message when we take communion, uh, we'll give those of you who are members and regular attenders and want to make a commitment to this initiative uh, the opportunity to come forward and to uh, prayerfully make that commitment when we celebrate communion of what you're going to give today as well as what you plan to give over the next few years. And, and I hope that it can just be a great time to celebrate that together and uh, I know that the Lord will use every bit of it. Um, if you're like me, you feel like, gosh, I don't know if what I'm given is going to make that big of a difference, but, but it will. And I hope you get a taste of that uh, today. Now, if you are a guest, we don't have an expectation of you to give toward our building project, but if you want to, I mean, we'll, we'll cash the checks. Uh, but we really, we j truly don't have that as an expectation. Um, instead, I hope you'll just get a sense of, of kind of what our church is about. And that's a lot of what we've been trying to do in this series. So in this series, we've been looking at what Jesus was teaching to his disciples very personally uh, on the last night before he was betrayed. We've looked at John 14 to 16, uh, and today we look at John 17. This is all part of what's called the upper room discourse. Um, and, and this is important. The reason we've been looking at this is not because these portions of Scripture have anything to do at all or say anything to do at all with whether we should build a building or how we should build or how much to build. The Bible doesn't say anything about that. Uh, the, the Bible doesn't say whether you should meet in a house or meet in a school or meet in a building that you own or meet in a building that you rent. It uh, doesn't say anything like that at all, and we're not trying to make it say that. Instead, what we're trying to do is not focus on, on the Bible saying what we should build or how we should build or any of that. Rather, we're trying to say what kind of people is God calling us to be? What kind of church family is God inviting us to be in whatever building we inhabit for whenever we do. So whether this was a church plant or whether we're in the rented space or a space we own or anything else, I think what we're talking about here really gets to the heart of what does Jesus want us to be as his church representing him uh, to the world. So that's what we're doing. Now, John 17, which uh, Josh read the first part of a little bit earlier, is a little bit of a transition in this because 14 to 16, Jesus has been teaching his disciples, and now in John 17, he begins to pray. And so John 17 is the Apostle John, who was one of uh, Jesus' disciples, eavesdropping on Jesus' prayer. And John 17 is the longest prayer of Jesus that we have recorded it. Uh, some people have called this kind of the true Lord's Prayer because you actually hear Jesus uh, spending time with his Father. Um, and so that's, uh, that's what we're looking at. Interestingly, this is the very first passage that we studied as a church uh, about eight years ago and continues, I think, to, to shape and to guide us. And uh, it's interesting, as you, as you read Jesus' prayer, and, and 
I know Josh just read the first five verses. We'll actually look at, at uh, a bunch of stuff throughout the chapter. As you read it, you'll see there are two things that are really on the top of Jesus' mind. Two things he repeats and brings up and keeps bringing up and keeps uh, drawing attention to. The first one is glory. Glory. The glory of God and the glory that he has as the Son of God. Let me show this to you. Look at what it says in John 17, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Verse 4. I glorified you on earth. Jesus, again, remember, he's praying. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Go to verse 10. Jesus says, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. Verse 22, if you Kind of, I said scroll, most of you are on a phone. So if you scroll down to verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. And then if you go to verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So you see this? Glory is just all over the place. It's on his mind. He's thinking about it a lot. What is he talking about? Well, the glory of God, as you read through the scriptures, uh, it, it brings to mind a number of things. Sometimes it brings to mind brightness, splendor, radiance. Uh, the glory of God sometimes appears as this bright and beautiful light that is seen. Uh, sometimes the glory of God has with it the idea of weight, of importance. Uh, one person has defined the glory of God as the going public of God's infinite worth. Right, one of the places that you can really see the glory of God on display is in Isaiah chapter 6. If you ever read Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah is brought into the throne room of heaven. He gets to see the glory of God. And what he sees there just really grabs his attention, as you can imagine. There are these odd angels that have wings and feet and all these kind of they're covering up different, I mean, it's just these odd creatures, and they're constantly flying around the, the throne of God. I mean, honestly, it's a bizarre scene, right? If you've never read the Bible, you're like, that sounds weird. It is weird. Yeah, it's, it's different. And, and these angels are calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. They just keep saying this. It says day and night over and over and over. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now, this is important. In the Hebrew language, uh, they don't really have a way of saying that something is very holy or very important. They, what instead do is they repeat the word twice. So there's a spot in the Old Testament where it talks about that a number of people fell into these really big pits. But in the Hebrew language, there isn't a way to say really big pits. You just say, they fell into pit pits. They fell into really pity pits, right? These, these were the pittiest of pits, right? That, so that's how it says it. So when the, the angels in, in Isaiah 6 say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That's three. This means, wow, there's nothing like God. Holy means set apart. It means spectacular. It means there's no one like him. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. They say the whole earth is full of his glory. 
And it says that as they shout this, and as Isaiah looks at this scene, the foundation of the temple is shaken. There's a kind of earthquake because when God lands, he's heavier than you. And it shakes because of the glory of God. And Jesus is saying, Father, I want to be focused on. I want to experience. I want these disciples who've been following me. I want the disciples who will come after them to experience your glory. Why? I mean, I mean, there's a way in which right, Jesus here keeps saying, you know, glorify your son. God, glorify me, glorify me, glorify me. Anybody think that that's a prayer you should be allowed to pray? Like if you were in a, if you were in a small group and somebody started praying, uh, glorify me, God. You should, like, maybe look out for lightning. I would get out of that room, right? But, but why is it that Jesus can pray that? Well, because Jesus is not an idolater. Here's what I mean. Idolaters, sinners like you and me, we are constantly exchanging the glory of God for a lie. And we take created things and we give them the going public of infinite worth. We go, oh, I want to live for my career. I want to live for my kids. I want to live to be important. I want to live for fame. I want to live for comfort. We, we, we idolize those things. Those are the things that get the glory. It's idolatry. And Jesus is able to say, glorify me, because he knows that he is the most glorious person in the universe. The best thing that could ever happen to us would be to be totally engaged in and delighted in the glory of God. So it permeates his prayer. Now, the second thing that permeates his prayer is mission. Mission. Now, the word mission uh, comes from the, the Latin word missio, which means sent. And all throughout this prayer, you get this sense that Jesus has been sent and that Jesus is now sending his people to continue the mission that God has given to reconcile all things to himself. Look at what, the way these are described. Look at verse 2. Jesus says, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life, to all whom you have given him. That's something that Jesus does as part of his mission from God to reconcile a sinful world to a holy God is he gives eternal life. It says in verse four, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus came to do something. He came to reconcile people to God. Verse six, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Jesus says that was part of my mission, was to help people know who God really was. Verse eight, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So Jesus came to give, give words, give the words of God to people so they could be reconciled to him. The clearest place we see this is down in verse 18. Look at verse 18. He says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus says, Father, just as you gave me a mission to be part of helping reconcile all things to you, now I'm sending them to be part of that mission too. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. See, Jesus knows that he's not just praying for his disciples, but that this mission is going to go forward, and there would be people someday, thousands of years later, in the ends of the earth, i.e. Queen Creek, Arizona, 
who would believe in Jesus because of that mission. He says this in verse 21. I pray that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Do you see this? These two things that are just constantly on Jesus' mind is the glory of God and the mission of God's people. Now, John Piper is an author and a pastor who said that mission exists because worship doesn't. Because the world has a worship disorder where we give glory to created things instead of to God, we are called to go out as God's representatives on mission to help people experience the glory of God and then themselves be invited into this mission. So those are the things that are on Jesus' mind. Those are the things that are on his heart as he prays. And those are the things that should be on our hearts and minds. We should not get all wrapped up in in our own glory, but rather be delighted in the glory of God. And we should not view just mission as maybe this one extra thing that maybe part of our lives or part of our churches do, but that all of us are engaged in God's mission. See, God has been reconciling the world to himself, and he says, join with me in this. I love this quote by Ed Stetzer. Here's what Ed Stetzer says. He says, it's not that God's church has a mission, but that God's mission has a church. Think about that for a second. It's not that the church has a mission, it's that the mission has a church. In other words, we, the church, are God's plan A for his mission to the world. And get this, there's no plan B. We're, we're the mission, or we're, 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 we're part of that mission. So if we're going to glorify God, if we're going to carry out his mission, the rest of this prayer tells us four things that we need to know. All right, so four things that we need to know, and we'll work through these fairly quickly. Uh, We need to know who Jesus is. We need to know what eternal life is. We need to know what sets us apart. And we need to know what brings us together. Jesus talks about all four of those things. Who Jesus is, what eternal life is, what sets us apart, and what brings us together. And if we can get our hearts around those things, I think God will use us in powerful ways to make it where more people love the glory of God and they're touched by his mission. All right, so that's where we're going to head. Join with me and let's pray and then we'll dive in more on this. Father, uh, thank you for this opportunity to be together and to open your word. God, we pray that our hearts would be united together around your heart for the glory of God and the mission to this world. So we pray for that in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so first, this uh, passage tells us who Jesus is. If we're going to be uh, faithful to God's glory and God's mission, we have to have a right understanding of who Jesus is. Jesus tells us a few things that tell us who he is. The first comes in verse 1. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So Jesus first is the Son of God. Jesus prayed to God as Father, which was spectacularly different than what anybody had experienced. He was the Son of God. And we get even more of a sense of what that means when we read verse 2. 
He says, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. All right, now let's stop for a second. Pop quiz here. All right, the Jews listening to Jesus pray, they're overhearing Jesus pray. Who would the Jews have thought had authority over all flesh to give eternal life? Who gets to do that? God, right? Only God, only Yahweh has authority over all flesh. He created it, he made it, he has that power, he has that right, and only God can give eternal life to people, right? So when Jesus prays, Father, glorify me because you've given me authority over all flesh, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I'm God. He's the Son of God, which means he is divine. And it also tells us, we learn in verse 5, that Jesus is eternally glorious. Look at verse 5. He says, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Wow, that's a huge claim. Jesus is saying, before the world even existed, I existed. And I had the glory of God. I was sharing it with the Father. That is a bold claim. Now, that's not like, this isn't the only place Jesus talks about this. If you read the Gospel of John, you'll see over and over and over, Jesus makes claims like this. And what happens a number of times, it happens at least twice in John 8 and in John 10, is after Jesus says something like this, the Jews, do you know what they do? They pick up stones to kill him. Right? They do what you should try to do, the person in your small group who asks for glory. Right? They pick up stones and go, this is blasphemy. This is terrible. You can't claim to be God. They pick up stones to stone him. Jesus absolutely claimed to be God. Sometimes people go, oh, he never claimed to be God. Yes, he did. Now, the question is, what will you do with that? Philosopher and author C.S. Lewis kind of says, hey, there's really sort of three options. Here's what he says in Mere Christianity. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. It's about Jesus. So here's the really foolish thing. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Now, that might be actually where a number of you are. You might today go, well, gosh, are you calling me a fool? Well, hold on. C.S. Lewis is. But before you're too offended, listen, listen to his reasoning, right? He's saying, you know, you can't say, yeah, he's a good teacher, but, I, but, he's, but he's not God. Here's why. He says, that is the sort of thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher, he would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. You know what he's saying? He's saying if you claim to be God and you're not, well, you're not a good teacher because you're a liar, or maybe you're just nuts, that means you're not a good teacher because you're insane, 
or you are who you say you are. And if we are going to be a church that is committed to the glory of God and being used by him for his mission to the world, we have to hold fast to our confidence that Jesus is the divine son of God. Here's the second thing we need to know is what eternal life is. What eternal life is. Jesus talks about this in verse 3. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Have you ever heard in life, hey, uh, you know, the, the thing in life, it's not about what you know, it's not about what you do, it's all about who you know. In life, it's all about who you know. You ever heard that? Well, in eternal life, it's all about who you know. It isn't about what you do. It isn't about what you know. Jesus says it's about who you know. Do you see that, verse 3? This is eternal life, that they know you, God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's eternal life. Eternal life happens when we have a relationship with God that is based on trust. Every great relationship is built on trust. Did you know that? We're going to talk about this in the marriage series coming up in a few weeks, like, You don't have a good relationship with people you don't trust, which is why when God says, I want you to have eternal life, I want you to have a relationship with me, he doesn't say, hey, just obey me, just submit to me, just do what I say, just sacrifice for me. He says, trust me, believe in me, have confidence in me. Why? Because God doesn't just want servants and minions. He wants relationships. And so we have to continually remember eternal life is about a relationship with God. It's not about getting busy for God. It's not about doing a lot of things for God. It's not about knowing a lot of stuff for God. Because if we start to think eternal life is that, then rather than boasting in what Jesus has done for us on the cross, we start to boast in ourselves. Well, look at me. Aren't I pretty good? I was pretty smart. I learned a lot, and I really worked hard. No. That, that, that is robbing glory from God for ourselves. If we're going to be committed to the glory of God, we've got to know what eternal life is. It's relationship by faith in Jesus, period. Here's the third thing that we need to know. To be committed to God's glory and mission is we need to know what sets us apart. We need to know what sets us apart. See, we're not the same as the world. There's a difference. And uh, this might feel a little uncomfortable, you know, like especially in this time where it feels like a lot of people are emphasizing division and a lot of people want to figure out, well, who's us and who's them and who's the other and that sort of a thing. And yet there is a real sense here that Jesus says, hey, I want you to know what sets you apart. And it's not what we might think, right? What often sets groups of people apart are their language or their background or their culture, maybe their ethnicity, maybe their lineage, maybe their family structure. It might be the kind of clothing they wear. It might be certain cultural practices. But what's interesting about Christianity is Christianity can go into any culture and rather than imposing itself on the culture, it can actually find a home in that culture that actually finds the redeeming parts of that culture and and allows you to inhabit those as well as confronts the parts that need to be confronted. Contrast that just for example with say Islam. Islam is a religion that comes into any culture it is, and it overwhelms that culture. It says, here's how you dress, here's the direction you pray, here's the language you have to pray in, even if you don't know it. 
It's this, it's this dominating, it, that's what sets it apart, is this cultural unity. Well, the, 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 what sets us apart? If it's not culture, if it's not language, if it's not background, what is it? Jesus tells us in verse 17. Look at verse 17. Well, actually, we'll, we'll start in verse 14. He says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. By the way, that's a, that's a really important verse, right? Because you might think, well, here's what, set, here's what sets us apart from the world is that we hit the eject button and go live in Bubble Creek Canyon where we just kind of live all by ourselves and don't have, don't have to interact with anybody. Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm not trying to take you out of the world. I want you to be in the world. Verse 16, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. But then here it is. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The word sanctify is a word that means set them apart. Father, set them apart with your truth. Set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. What sets Christians apart is our commitment to the truth of God's word. Now, it's really interesting. This year, uh, Oxford Dictionary has come out with their 2016 word of the year. Have you seen this? They do this every year. They come out with these words that are now new and popular in, in culture or whatever. And do you know what the, the, they're saying the, the word of the year is? The number one word of the year from Oxford Dictionary this year, 2016. What do you think it is? Here it is. Post-truth. That's the word of the year. We live in a post-truth world. Well, what's post-truth? What does that mean? Here's the definition they give. Post-truth. Relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. There's your word of the year. Post-truth. What they're saying is we live in a culture where facts don't matter anymore. What's actually true doesn't matter. What's, what matters is how it makes you feel. And if your feelings are stronger than the facts, well, then just ignore the facts. Now, listen. Listen. That might be the 2016 new word of the year. That's not new. That's not new at all. Right? This is why Jesus, 2,000 years ago, is saying, here's what's going to set you apart, is that you're committed to the truth. Not your feelings about it. Not your emotions. You're committed to the truth. And the truth, not just of, well, this is my truth and that's your truth, but the truth of what? Your word is truth, he says. So the scriptures which means if we're going to be used for God's glory and God's mission, we have to tether ourselves to the scriptures and all that it implies. There's a great line. I love this quote that I heard by a guy. He said, the most controversial thing that I believe is Genesis 1-1 and all that it implies. Now, Genesis 1-1, if you don't know that, says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This guy says, that's the most controversial thing I believe. Because if I believe that and all that it implies, here's what it means. I don't live for my feelings. I don't live for myself. There is a God to whom I must give account. Well, the culture doesn't want that. And yet the church has to say, no, that's what we're going to hold to. That's what's going to set us apart. And it might cost us and people might ridicule us. You believe that Jesus is the only way to God? Come on. You believe that it doesn't really matter what you do, it's just what you believe? Come on. You believe that, that God inspired a book written over all these? Come on. And yet, 
in his last recorded prayer for his disciples. That's what Jesus is praying about. He's saying that's what's going to make you effective for God's glory and God's mission is your commitment to those things. But then there's a fourth thing. We have to know what brings us together. We have to know what brings us together. What, what is our unity? What is our oneness built on? There's a lot of emphasis in the world, and, and rightly so, about saying, hey, we're so divided and we're so polarized and, and we're in this post-truth world where everyone just believes with their own set of facts and we need to be united. That's, that's, there's a lot of good in that idea. Jesus says, here's what unites my people. Verses 22 and 23, look at those. He says, the glory that you have given me I have given to them and that, I, that they may be one even as we are one. And then this is it. This is the key. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. Why? Why does unity matter? Why is unity important? Here it is. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So Jesus says, hey, I want the church to be brought together. I want the church to be united. I want the church to be one. Why? Because the world is looking, and this will show the world that I really have come after them. Okay, well, what is our oneness? What is our togetherness built on? Did you see it there in verse 23? It's built on union with Christ. Christ in us. The Father in Christ. All of us perfectly one. Right? This is not built on just a horizontal, let's just all get along kind of unity. This is saying, let's fix our attention on the glory of God. Let's find our identity in him and how he, through Christ, is in us. And let's now build unity around that. That's what holds us together. That's why the church is called a family. We're not just an organization. We're not a group. We're a family with the Heavenly Father, and an older brother, Jesus. And we're brothers and sisters and are supposed to treat each other and live like family. Because in a family, yeah, you got your weird uncle. And you got different preferences about, well, we kind of do our family this way and that way. But in a family, you all trace back to one father. In our unity, it's not around a culture, it's not around an ethnicity, it's not around a country, it's around a father that we have access to through Jesus. That's what empowers our mission. That's what's gonna allow us to live for God's glory. And isn't that what we want? And that's what this is about. That's why we started this church, is we wanted a group of people, however big, however small God would allow us to be, that would be focused on lifting up the name of Jesus and helping others to experience the life that's found in him. That's what we want. 